Welcome to the World War I History Podcast, produced by the MacArthur Memorial, a museum and research center dedicated to preserving and presenting the history of General Douglas MacArthur, which includes the story of World War I and that of the millions of men and women who served in that war. Gallipoli, Crucible of Nations the 1915 Gallipoli Campaign was an operation that was supposed to end the stalemate of the Western Front. It utilized a mix of troops mainly from Great Britain, France, Australia, and New Zealand. As these troops sailed towards Gallipoli in 1915, some considered themselves the luckiest young men in the war. They believed they were not bound for the mud and the filth of the trenches in Europe, but for the plains of ancient Troy. Despite this enthusiasm, however, Gallipoli proved a costly Allied failure. Allied troops suffered a quarter of a million casualties in eight months. The sacrifice of the Anzacs, the troops of the Australian and New Zealand Army Corps, left a particularly deep impression on their respective nations. The Turkish defenders also endured appalling casualties. And yet many scholars argue today that out of this crucible of sacrifice emerged the modern identities of Turkey, Australia, and New Zealand. The campaign was fought in the region of the Dardanelles, a narrow strait in northwestern Turkey that connects the Aegean Sea to the Sea of Mamara, and then from there to the Bosphorus and the Black Sea. The Gallipoli Peninsula, where the majority of the Allied landings occurred, forms the northern bank of the strait. For thousands of years, the Dardanelles have been the setting for great historical or mythical dramas. Four miles from the southern entrance of the Straits lie the ruins of the ancient city of Troy and the Trojan plain where Achilles and Hector fought. At the Narrows, or what the classical world referred to as the Hellespont, lies the gateway between Europe and Asia. This is the place where the great enemy of the Greeks, the Persian king Xerxes, led his army from Asia to Europe by way of a pontoon bridge. When bad weather destroyed part of this makeshift bridge, the Greek historian Herodotus writes that Xerxes instructed his men to whip the water in punishment. In later history, the peninsula was also traversed by Roman legions, Byzantine emperors, and Islamic armies. For more than a thousand years, this critical passageway has provided the only exit for the Black Sea and has given life to the trading ports of Constantinople, Odessa, and Sebastopol. By 1914, the Ottoman Empire controlled this vital passageway, but was considered the sick man of Europe, an unstable, soon-to-disintegrate empire. European powers hovered like vultures, anxious to see how that part of the world would be divided once the Ottoman Empire collapsed. Traditionally among the great powers, Russia worked to accelerate this decline, while Britain, anxious to protect the Suez Canal and India, sought to mediate the decline. Ironically, in the critical years before the Great War, British diplomats managed to alienate the Young Turks, a group of revolutionaries who had staged a coup in order to modernize and reform the Ottoman Empire. Germany, a relatively new power, happily filled the void left by the British. When Kaiser Wilhelm II wasn't busy adding to his uniform collection, or indulging in paranoia about his English relatives or about Asians, this grandson of Queen Victoria was absolutely enamored with Islam and the Ottoman Empire. On several trips to the region prior to the war, he declared himself the protector of Islam. With his support, Germany embarked on an ambitious project to create a Berlin to Baghdad railway and sent a military mission to the Ottomans in 1913. 
German diplomats cultivated the Young Turks and the Turkish military, although not all young Turkish officers, such as Mustafa Kemal, then in his early 30s, were thrilled by this attention. By the time the war broke out in 1914, Germany was well-placed to add the Ottoman Empire to its short list of allies. The Germans believed the war would be over quickly and reassured the Turks that they would not actually be required to do anything. That soon changed. As World War I demonstrates so well, even a minor incident can have global repercussions. When the Young Turks came to power, they had embarked on a major effort to overhaul their navy. Strapped for cash, they had crowdsourced a new navy by setting up donation boxes around the country to gather money. This quest soon became a major patriotic movement. A total of six million pounds was raised, and a British firm was contracted to build two modern warships. In August 1914, Turkish crews were in England waiting to take the ships home. Suddenly, Winston Churchill, First Lord of the Admiralty, the politician in charge of the Royal Navy, announced that due to reasons of national security, Britain was requisitioning the ships. The Turks furiously protested and were offered a thousand pounds a day to stay neutral during the war and not make trouble about the ships. Once again, a British mistake yielded a German opportunity. In a magnanimous gesture, Germany offered Turkey two warships, the Breslau and the Gobin. These ships had made a dash for the Dardanelles earlier to avoid capture by the British. Once in Turkish waters, these German vessels flew Turkish naval ensigns, and German crews donned fezes and made a show of being Turkish sailors. Soon a German admiral took over the Turkish fleet, and a German general, Otto Lehmann von Sanders, took over a Turkish army. Other German officers took over as staff officers throughout the Turkish army. Considering that the Ottoman Empire was still officially neutral, this was quite a provocation. The British responded in an odd fashion. Vice Admiral Sackville Hamilton Carden was placed in charge of the British East Mediterranean Squadron, the squadron tasked with watching over this increasingly troubled region. This job should have gone to Vice Admiral Henry Limpus, head of the British naval mission at Constantinople, and a man with vast knowledge of the defenses of the Dardanelles. But, anxious to demonstrate that Britain did not want war with the Turks, the British felt it would be better to place an officer with no insider knowledge of the region in the position. An angry Winston Churchill referred to the situation as a chivalry which surely outstripped common sense. These good intentions ultimately come to nothing. Back to the Western Front, as the First Battle of the Marne ended in stalemate instead of quick victory, Germany suddenly needed Turkey to be a fighting ally. At the end of September 1914, ignoring all international treaties mandating that the Straits remain open to countries not at war with Turkey, the Germans pressured the Turks to close the Dardanelles. Reports soon emerged of dense forests of masts and smokestacks clogging the ports of Constantinople. Russia was cut off from her allies. As it is today, access to the Mediterranean was incredibly important to Russia. In 1914, 90% of Russia's grain went through the Dardanelles. 50% of other exports and imports also went this route. To have this route strangled off was disastrous. In early November, after the Ottomans refused to expel all German naval personnel and reopen the straits, two British cruisers and two French battleships bombarded the Turkish forts defending the entrance to the Dardanelles. Two days later, Britain followed her allies and officially declared war on the Ottoman Empire. There was no concerted strategy or plan at work. 
just a belief by Churchill that it is a good thing to give it a prompt blow. This prompt blow proved to be an advantage to the Turks and their German allies. Satisfied that the Turkish defenses were soft and easy to penetrate, the Allies sat back for months. The Turks used that time to double the minefields, install more searchlights along the water, link artillery batteries with telephone lines, lay range buoys, and locate places on the hillsides to place mobile howitzers. Soon the peninsula was bristling with 82 heavy guns and an additional 230 artillery pieces. As Turkish troops began practicing anti-invasion drills, more gun crews and German artillery officers arrived to bolster the defenses. A reserve force was also stationed in the region. Lieutenant Colonel Mustafa Kemal's 19th Division was part of this mobile reserve. By this point in the war, the Allies had suffered a million casualties in Europe. The trenches stretched from the English Channel to Switzerland. Neither side could break the stalemate. Lord Herbert Kitchener dominated the British war effort as the Secretary of State for War. Kitchener was of the killing German school of thought. In his mind, the more Germans killed, the sooner the war would end. Despite overwhelming losses, he believed the Allies must continue their assaults on the Western Front until at some point, somewhere, someday, somehow, the German lines broke. Restless, Churchill wrote to the British Prime Minister, are there not other alternatives than sending our armies to chew barbed wire in Flanders? Like others, Churchill was beginning to see the Ottoman Empire and the Middle East as the soft underbelly of the enemy. In November 1914, a British Navy landing party had gone ashore at Iskenderun, also known as Alexandretta, to destroy Turkish locomotives and supplies. The local Turkish forces had actually helped plant charges to destroy their own supplies. In the mind of the British military planners, this quixotic episode revealed something important. Johnny Turk, as the Turkish soldier was nicknamed, was clearly an incompetent soft target. Kaiser Wilhelm also saw the Ottoman Empire as key to breaking the stalemate in Europe. He believed he could use the empire to rally 300 million Muslims against the Allies and generate what one German official labeled a gigantic St. Bartholomew's Day massacre of Christians. On November 11, 1914, his agents had the Ottoman Caliph issue a fatwa calling for global jihad against the British, French, and Russians. German agents then fanned out across the Middle East to persuade Muslim jurists from Mecca to Kabul to issue similar fatwas. As he threw three billion German marks behind the strategy, the Kaiser was banking on the fact that there were no differences between Shias and Sunnis, that Turks, Kurds, Persians, and Arabs all had similar interests, and that no one in the region would be upset by his flirtations with Zionism. The Kaiser's global jihad did not eventually have its intended results, but as 1914 drew to a close, both the Allied and Central Powers were looking to the Ottoman Empire as a stalemate breaker. Back to the closure of the Dardanelles, with their main supply route cut off, by 1915 Russia was in a desperate position. They were fighting the Turks in the Caucasus, and in January 1915 they asked the Allies to attack the Turks to draw some pressure off of Russia. Even though the British did not believe this would help, they committed to try. Russia had already lost a million men in the war, but was still fighting and keeping German divisions bottled up on the Eastern Front. The last thing the Western Allies wanted was more Germans arriving on the Western Front. In response, Kitchener gave Churchill the green light to make a naval demonstration at the Dardanelles. 
but only a naval demonstration. He was adamant that there would be no boots on the ground. This was a problem because naval planners like First Sea Lord Admiral Jackie Fisher proposed using old battleships scheduled for scrapping to force the straits in conjunction with a 100,000 troops to secure the Gallipoli Peninsula. Churchill knew Kitchener would not make troops available, so he picked and parsed through the proposal and fixed on the possibility of forcing the straits with just the old battleships. He ultimately convinced himself that ground troops would not be needed. This flew in the face of Royal Navy tradition and philosophy. Britannia ruled the waves, but as famed British Admiral Horatio Nelson once said, any sailor who attacked a fort was a fool. And yet by January 1915, the Admiralty was instructed to prepare for a naval expedition with the objective of capturing Constantinople. Few asked how ships were to capture and hold territory, and if they did, no one wanted to talk about it. The morning of February 19th, Admiral Carden, the poor admiral chosen for his job because he didn't know anything about the Dardanelles, ordered his fleet to open fire on Turkish forts at the mouth of the Dardanelles. The Turkish guns remained relatively silent, and the Allied fleet managed to stay out of firing range. Bad weather then forced a delay, but the assault resumed on February 25th. Turkish forces abandoned the forts and fled up the peninsula. Admiral Carden informed London that he expected to be in Constantinople in two weeks. Grain prices plummeted across the world. With an Allied fleet expected to be in charge of the Straits in Constantinople, Russian grain was expected to once again pour through the world markets. The tide turned quickly. By early March, Turkish forces proved resilient and began to reoccupy the territory they had abandoned. Mobile Turkish guns popped up to harry the Allied fleet. While most of these guns were nothing more than a nuisance for the naval vessels, the requisitioned civilian ships and crews serving as minesweepers were far more vulnerable. The warships could not provide enough cover for the minesweepers, which in turn could not eliminate the mines, so the fleet could not force the straits and get to Constantinople. An impatient Churchill sent Admiral Carden a message. Two or three hundred casualties would be a moderate price to pay for sweeping up. The work has to be done whatever the loss of life, and the sooner it is done, the better. Cardin promised to launch an all-out effort to clear the straits, but he was overwhelmed. A doctor soon confirmed that he was close to a nervous breakdown. Forty-eight hours before the big drive to force the straits, a new commander was needed. Now that things weren't going so well, important questions were being asked. How do ships take and occupy land? Clearly boots on the ground were going to be required. In the end, Kitchener sent the British 29th Division, a French division, and Anzac troops that were stationed in Egypt. No one knew what these 78,000 troops would do or what the strength of their enemy would be. To add to this confusion, the only map they had of the Gallipoli Peninsula was hopelessly inaccurate in terms of scale and topography. But at least there were troops. Everybody seemed to agree that was a good start. On March 18th, the Allied fleet attempted to force the straits under a new commander, Admiral John de Robeck. Initially, everything seemed to go as planned. The fleet moved through the straits and attacked Turkish forts with an enormous amount of firepower. Observers on the peninsula were impressed by the fervor of the Turkish troops. As Allied shells ripped apart the landscape and sent ancient coins and pottery shards flying through the air, Turkish gunners were undaunted and appeared indifferent to harm. 
When one particular gun's mechanism for hauling shells was damaged, Turkish gunners began the Herculean task of hauling the shells themselves. Despite this courage, however, their ammunition was running out. They had a hidden line of defense, though. Ten days prior to the anticipated attack, a German advisor had helped the Turks lay a new line of mines. The Allies missed this. Early in the afternoon, the French battleship Bouvet struck one of these mines as she was turning to make room for the minesweepers to come forward. She sank with her captain and 660 crew members aboard. Soon the HMS Inflexible struck a mine and was forced to withdraw disabled. Then the HMS Irresistible was disabled by a mine. As efforts were being made to tow the Irresistible, there was a terrific explosion and the HMS Ocean listed sharply. Two other French battleships were also damaged. The attack was called off by late afternoon. The Allies had lost three ships and had another three disabled, but they remained confident. For two centuries, the British had gone from one naval victory to another. No one around the world believed that a bunch of old guns ringing the Dardanelles could prevent the coming Allied victory. Even the Turks anticipated defeat. In Constantinople, trains were arranged to take the caliph and the government to the interior. Gold and other treasures were packed up and shipped off. The young Turks even ordered dynamite placed in iconic buildings like Hagia Sophia. If defeat came, treasures like this were to be destroyed. But the Allies did not resume their attack. Days after the attempt to force the Straits, Admiral de Robeck announced that the fleet could not force the Straits and take Constantinople without troops. Suddenly, all of the pressure was on General Ian Hamilton, the new commander of the Mediterranean Expeditionary Force that was going to be landing on the Gallipoli Peninsula. General Hamilton found a piecemeal force at his disposal. There were few regular army officers in the force, and most of the troops were very raw recruits. In addition to the French and British elements of the force, he had one Australian division and one combined division made up of troops from Australia and New Zealand. These particular troops already had a reputation for challenging authority, as they proved by rioting in the brothels of Cairo on Good Friday before being sent to the Dardanelles. They also had a particular dislike for British leadership. However, it was noted that the Anzacs were a tough and physically impressive set of men. They were an all-volunteer force, which traditionally implied high morale and cohesion. Five weeks after the last attempt to force the Straits, the Mediterranean Expeditionary Force was ready to begin the largest amphibious operation of the war. Tens of thousands of Turkish soldiers were waiting for them. Operation security had been a total nightmare, and Turkish intelligence had ample time to confirm the invasion. Four days before the actual landings, even newspapers in the United States were able to pinpoint the region where the landings would occur. In addition, in Egypt, British officers had been seen buying guidebooks to Constantinople and copies of Homer's Iliad. The Prime Minister's son, Arthur Asquith, and the poet Rupert Brooke were among some of the young men en route to the Dardanelles. They confidently wrote letters to friends and family, telling them to post all future correspondence to Constantinople. An early supporter of the war, Brooke penned the famous poem The Soldier that begins, If I should die, think only this of me that there's some corner of a foreign field that is forever England. He died two days before the Gallipoli landings on a French hospital ship due to complications from an infected mosquito bite. General Hamilton knew that clearly his forces would not have the element of surprise. He planned to land forces in multiple areas on the peninsula to confuse the Ottomans as to his true objectives. 
In the early morning hours of April 25th, the Anzacs landed on the mid-peninsula to cut off the western Turkish forts. The British 29th Division landed on the tip of the peninsula, and the French landed on the Asiatic side of the Dardanelles. The French landing was a diversion. They would eventually evacuate and join the 29th Division. Far from being worried about dispersing the strength of their force, the Allies believed that man-to-man -man their forces were superior. Johnny Turk, so the conventional wisdom went, was a poor soldier. The plan was to capture and hold the northern peninsula so that a naval force could successfully advance through the Narrows to Constantinople. It was vital that the troops get off the beaches and capture the heights as soon as possible. In the pre-dawn hours of April 25th, the Anzac troops landed on a tiny sliver of beach, today referred to as Anzac Cove. This was not the intended landing site, but as so often happens in war, not everything goes exactly to plan. On the sliver of beach, the Anzacs were protected from the big Turkish guns, but they also faced the difficult task of breaking out and up a steep hillside. As a result, the Ottoman defenders were able to contain the attack close to shore. By the early afternoon, the Turks were nearly out of ammunition, and they began to meet the attackers on the slopes with bayonets fixed. Near the heights of Chenik Bear, the target of the Anzacs, the Turkish 57th Infantry Regiment received orders from Lieutenant Colonel Kemal. I do not order you to fight, I order you to die. In the ensuing battle, every man of the 57th was either killed in action or wounded. As a sign of respect today, the 57th Regiment no longer exists in the Turkish army. By nightfall, around 16,000 men had landed, and the Anzacs had formed a cramped beachhead. The commander of the Anzac force informed General Hamilton that his staff was suggesting an evacuation by sea because a breakout was virtually impossible. Hamilton, who had yet to see the battlefield firsthand, rejected this request. He responded, Dig yourselves right in and stick it out. Dig, dig, dig until you are safe. This order gave the Anzacs the famous nickname Diggers. In an ironic twist, in a paper presented to the Royal Geographic Society in London the next day, D.G. Hogarth outlined the geography of the war with the Ottoman Empire and drew the conclusion that no general, if he had the choice, would land a considerable force upon the peninsula. He argued that the lack of potable water, as well as the inhospitable terrain, would doom any campaign. The advice was good, but it was too late. According to the Commonwealth War Graves Commission, 754 Australian and 147 New Zealand soldiers died on 25th April 1915. Thousands more were wounded. Junior officers had a particularly high mortality rate, as the difficult terrain forced them to expose themselves to enemy fire in order to find out where they were or where their men were. It is unknown how many Turkish soldiers died, but most estimates are in the thousands. Over the next weeks, there were several failed attacks and counterattacks by both sides. A lot of this involved hand-to-hand -hand fighting. On May 19th, 42,000 Turks launched an attack to push 17,000 Anzacs into the sea. Despite overwhelming numbers, they were repulsed because the Anzacs had been warned a day before by British aviators who had been flying reconnaissance missions over the peninsula. The Turks suffered 13,000 casualties. The Anzac casualties amounted to 160 killed and 468 wounded. The dead included a stretcher bearer, John Simpson Kirkpatrick. For two weeks, Kirkpatrick and a donkey he had found had worked day and night helping the wounded. 
Calm and collected, he walked the battlefield, singing and whistling, all the while ignoring enemy bullets that whizzed around. He saved countless lives, and in doing so, he exhibited the fearlessness and the comradeship that came to characterize the Anzac spirit. Nine days after the Allies landed at Gallipoli, a German officer advising the Turkish forces, Major Karl Muehlmann, wrote home to his parents, One has to pay the troops the highest tribute for not falling into disarray. For my part, I have once again gained the conviction that all is possible with this raw human material. The Allies were also finding the Turks to be a brave and worthy opponent. On May 23rd, the Red Cross and the Red Crescent arranged a temporary truce so that both sides could bury the dead. As historian Alan Moorhead writes, During this lull in the fighting, the Anzacs formed a new opinion of the Turks. Johnny Turk ceased to be a propaganda figure. He was no longer a coward or a monster. He was a normal man, and they thought him very brave. There were even reports that Anzac troops refused to carry gas masks, explaining to their officers that the Turks were honorable fighters and would not resort to the chemical weapons. The fighting continued in spurts throughout summer. By July, the Turks had 250,000 forces committed to the peninsula. The Allies were joined by three new divisions of Kitchener's new army, a group of raw recruits who had responded to posters featuring a glaring Kitchener and the slogan, Britain's Lord Kitchener Wants You. These posters would later serve as the inspiration for the American Uncle Sam Wants You posters. The summer heat on the peninsula was incredibly difficult. Troops were exhausted hauling water up through the trench systems. Corned beef rations literally cooked in their tins if left out in the sun. Flies swarmed the region, and it was said that each mouthful of food included at least four flies. Every day a thousand Allied troops were evacuated due to disease, mostly dysentery. Unburied corpses lay putrefying in no man's land, drawing more flies and spreading a terrible stench miles out to sea. The Turks faced similar conditions. Piled-up bodies or body parts were crammed into some of their defense works. Some walls and trench floors were slippery with fluids from these decomposing remains. On August 6th, the Allies mounted one more attack at a place called Suvla Bay. The attack would be conducted by two divisions from Kitchener's new army that had no combat experience. To lighten the burden on them, the Anzacs were ordered to distract the Turks while the new troops landed. In one of the most tragic parts of the campaign, the Anzacs stormed up Lone Pine Ridge. Some units suffered 74% casualties. Six Victoria Crosses were won that day, but the operation failed to take the heights. Another group of Anzacs simultaneously assaulted the heights of Chenuk Bear. In the process, they were utterly obliterated, as depicted in the movie Gallipoli. In the end, the sacrifice did not win the day. The new troops who had landed at Suvla Bay arrived tired and thirsty. The Turks were nowhere to be seen, but instead of advancing, the division stopped and rested on the orders of an incompetent commander. In doing so, they lost the initiative, and by the next morning, thousands of Turks were waiting on the heights for them. Stalemate had been achieved once again. Having suffered an additional 40,000 casualties, General Hamilton then asked London for another 95,000 men. Gambling on a win, Churchill and other supporters of the campaign had consistently funneled troops to the region. Now it was clear that Gallipoli was a failure. Staff officers sent to London to beg for more troops began publicly calling for an evacuation. No one really listened, though, until a 29-year-old journalist, Keith Arthur Murdoch, the future father of Rupert Murdoch, 
wrote a florid account of incompetence and the waste of lives at Gallipoli. In response to growing concern over the campaign, Kitchener visited the peninsula in early November 1915 and was taken aback by the terrain and the cramped beachheads. On November 22nd, he informed London that Gallipoli had to be abandoned. Foreseeing this outcome, Winston Churchill had already resigned as First Lord of the Admiralty on November 18th. He departed and headed to the Western Front to command a battalion in the mud of Flanders. His wife Clementine believed he would die of grief. His only support in the press came from J. L. Garvin, who wrote for The Observer, He is young, he has lion-hearted courage, his hour of triumph will come. The suffering at Gallipoli was not over, however. At the end of November, a two-day blizzard of sleet and snow covered the peninsula. Icy water rushed down the hills and surged into the trenches, drowning men inside. Two hundred men froze to death, and sixteen thousand were listed as disabled by frostbite. The Turks didn't fare any better. Allied soldiers reported Turkish bodies washing down the hills at regular intervals. Evacuations of the Anzac Suvla beaches finally began in December. This operation was probably the greatest success of the campaign, at a cost of one man wounded. 83,000 men, 200 artillery pieces, and 5,000 horses and mules had to be evacuated. The evacuation began in secret on December 12, 1915, and went on each night under the cover of darkness. To keep up the facade, during the day empty supply boxes were brought ashore. Within five days, 40,000 troops had been taken off the beaches. The evening of December 18th, 20,000 were evacuated. As the trenches emptied out, fixed rifles were rigged to fire automatically. On December 19th, the last 20,000 men were evacuated. For 30 minutes, the self-firing rifles continued. The Turkish forces were later astonished to find the enemy gone. Thirteen miles to the south, 35,000 British and French troops were left. Their evacuation would be trickier now that the Turks were watching closely for another evacuation. On January 7th, the Allied troops were down to 19,000 men. Sensing this weakness, Turkish commanders ordered their troops to attack. The troops refused. They knew the Allies were leaving and they didn't want to die days before the end of the bitter campaign. Over the next nights, the Allies slipped away. By January 9th, the peninsula had been evacuated. Food and equipment enough to sustain four Turkish divisions for four months was left behind. Turkish soldiers swarmed the beaches. Some had been living on bread and olives. Now they gorged themselves on the left-behind food. According to one report, a Turkish soldier apparently died from ingesting too much English marmalade. After eight months of fighting, the Allies suffered 250,000 casualties, including 50,000 dead. Turkish estimates were about equal. So between the sides, Gallipoli claimed half a million casualties. In the end, the Allies would go on to win the war, but it would be decided on the Western Front, not some soft underbelly thousands of miles away. The Ottomans would go on to lose the war and see their empire collapse. Many of the troops that fought at Gallipoli then went on to fight in the Turkish War of Independence. Led by Mustafa Kemal, who later gained the name Ataturk, six years after Gallipoli, the modern secular state of Turkey was born. The British official history of Gallipoli issued this judgment of Ataturk. 
Seldom in history can the exertions of a single divisional commander have exerted so profound an influence on the fate of a campaign and even the fate of a nation. While Ataturk rose a hero, Gallipoli ruined the reputation of Winston Churchill for more than a decade. Historian Paul Addison has likened Churchill's life to the game Snakes and Ladders. In a career of many snakes and ladders, 1915, the year of Gallipoli, was the longest of the snakes in which he landed. Churchill's leadership in World War II would eventually rehabilitate his reputation, and interestingly enough, the Allied landings at Normandy in 1944 would give him his greatest concern. In the United States, Gallipoli has been referred to as the Gettysburg of Australia, New Zealand, and Turkey because it forged new national narratives out of great sacrifice. For Australia and New Zealand, no longer would they be just the glory of the British Lion. In the years following the war, their collective pride in the Anzac spirit added to a growing sense of their own unique nationhood. This identity would be confirmed decades later in World War II along the famous Kokoda Trail in New Guinea where the Australians would fight another bruising campaign under the command of General Douglas MacArthur. As they marched on through the Pacific, their sacrifices again left a legacy of national pride. Troops from New Zealand were also recognized. Praising their combined achievements, General MacArthur later referred to himself as an Anzac in spirit if not in reality. In an interesting twist of fate, during the Korean War, General MacArthur would command a multinational UN force that included troops from New Zealand, Australia, and Turkey, all fighting together on the same side. In 1985, 70 years after the Gallipoli campaign, the Turkish government recognized the name Anzac Cove for the place on the peninsula where the Anzac troops landed in 1915. The Australian government responded by establishing the Kamal Ataturk Memorial in Canberra to honor the heroism and sacrifice of the Turkish and Anzac soldiers. In Wellington, New Zealand, a similar memorial was also established. In 1934, Ataturk delivered these remarks regarding the ties between the nations. Heroes that shed their blood and lost their lives. You are now lying in the soil of a friendly country. Therefore, rest in peace. You, the mothers who sent their sons from faraway countries, wipe away your tears. Your sons are now lying in our bosom and are in peace. Having lost their lives on this land, they have become our sons as well. Today, Anzac Cove is a major pilgrimage site. Tens of thousands of people gather there at dawn on April 25th for an Anzac Day ceremony to mark the landings. The crowds grow every year. At this and other Anzac Day ceremonies around the world, the Ode of Remembrance is recited. The Ode goes as follows. They shall grow not old, as we that are left grow old. Age shall not weary them, nor the years condemn. At the going down of the sun and in the morning, we will remember them. Thank you for listening. If you have any questions, suggestions, or comments, please contact Amanda Williams at amanda.williams at norfolk.gov.